Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, your co-hosts. And today we are div- diving, digging. Let's not combine words into one here. Let, let's dive into another episode where we're answering your questions. So whether you are our community on LinkedIn or Facebook or YouTube or somehow else you found us and you are getting our emails and sending us email questions, we really appreciate you. And not only do we appreciate your question that we would love to help provide clarity to your specific concerns and topics and things that are top of mind for you to be able to make progress in your financial life. But we also recognize that many people have questions and sometimes those questions are kind of beneath the surface or maybe subconscious and we don't necessarily verbalize them. But when we hear somebody else ask the question, it helps us to really process and think through what we think about something. And so today we're answering questions again. We started this episode or this um, way of doing podcasts last week. And we're going to go ahead and continue to bring your listener questions onto the show and make this a regular part of our scheduled programming. So today, um, Bruce, is there anything you want to share kind of before we dig into these questions that are we're just going to kind of have a dialogue about? I would uh, increase people or encourage people to continue to ask questions. Mm-hmm. But if you're asking questions... To me, there's two different types of questions. There's questions because you have a sincere sincerity about you to want to know more information. I'm not saying that you're going to agree with our answer, but you sincerely want to know more about so that you can formulate your own opinion. I don't appreciate questions that are like what I would call gotcha questions. Like, I'm just going to ask this question because I'm going to show you how ridiculous you are. In, in that person's mind, because they're not willing to open their mind. And I think you and I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm blinded by this too. I think we're always trying to get better and try to understand concepts better. And, but we're really looking for questions where people that are sincerely want to understand the concepts better. Bruce, I appreciate you sharing that at the beginning. And I think really where that's coming from as well is this idea that if you're on a growth journey and you're wanting to expand your mindset, that's one way of thinking versus an argument that's posed as a question. And so I think really the difference, and we can all learn from this. I think when we want to grow, even if we are in the process of shifting our mindset, that can be uncomfortable. Sometimes it can be uncomfortable when we choose to see things differently than we have seen them in the past. And when we choose to become open-minded, but I would encourage you to ask questions with that sincerity to be able to learn and to explore options and to really find out the truth. So today, that's what we're going to be answering. So let's dig into these questions. And again, thank you for being a part of our tribe. Thank you for listening from wherever you are. And thank you for choosing to grow your mindset. So today um, we have a question. This is from Matthew on YouTube. There is a couple of these that I'm not going to share the name of the person who asked just to... um, protect their privacy in terms of asking this question. But this was from Matthew. Thanks for the video. Very helpful. I just did a cash out refi with 30 year mortgage. Now I'm trying to find out what to do with this extra cash 
on my hands. So Matthew, I think a lot of times we can have people in this position. I've got cash now. And what do I do with this? Bruce, even before you jump in, I'm just going to say one thing on this. It depends on what your goals are and the purpose of your money. There's not a one size fits all. You should all do this same thing with your cash. It depends on what are you trying to accomplish? Does it need to be accessible for you? Does it need to be something that you're putting into a cash flowing asset so that you're increasing your, what Kiyosaki would call passive income, or we would call income from assets? Is it something that you're looking at doing the most with that money? Or do you have an investment opportunity already in, in mind? I would just really encourage you to say, what is the purpose of this cash before you formulate what strategy and what product you're going to use? Yeah, I think I think this uh, saying, although I first heard in the 70s from my father, still holds true to the day. He used to say, yeah, he's got money burning a hole in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And, and what that means, if our listeners don't understand that, is it means like he has some money and he, he feels like, he has to spend it on something or he has to do something with it. He can't just allow it to sit someplace. Now that's very difficult nowadays because we're bombarded with opportunities from all directions, but hanging on to capital is not a bad thing because when you, Nelson used to say this all the time, opportunities find cash. It's a very. It's called the beetle effect. This is another thing you you, you understand how old I am. Uh, the beetle was out after the Volkswagen Beetle, and I don't know if our lis- listeners know. In the '60s, the Volkswagen Beetle became very popular here in the United States from the hippie culture. I was going to say I, that's what I think of hippies and peace yeah. sign and like love and all that, you know. And then and then it came it came into the regular culture, and then people after they bought it they realized how many were on, on the roads. I think this happens with people with their normal cars. Now they buy a car, certain make and model, and then they drive, they're driving around and they say, they see a lot of those cars. It's Uh called the, it's called the beetle effect. See Bruce, I I didn't know that it had a cool name like that, but I have, (laughs) I have heard of it as the reticular activating system, which is like way super boring and technical and, you know, scholarly, but it's this part of your brain that then starts recognizing other people. When, when I got glasses, I noticed everyone else who had glasses. When I had a baby, all of a sudden, everyone else had babies too. You know, it's just very interesting that whatever you're doing, you start having almost a confirmation bias where you start seeing everyone else doing the same thing. And so when you're sitting on, before you're sitting on cash, you don't see these opportunities, but all of a sudden you do a cash out refinance and you're like, I got to find something. I got to find something. If you just relax, the beetle effect will take take place, and these opportunities will start appearing before your eyes. So that would be the first thing that I would say to Matt is just be patient. Now, maybe one of the things is, uh, you know, privatized banking or, or the infinite banking concept, because that would be a great place to store the money while you're waiting for these opportunities. So that's what the first thing I would go to. Yeah. I think another thing that was just top of mind to me with that is that if I am going to be in a position of having cash, I want to think about storing that where I get three advantages. One is safety, that it's not going to drop in value. Two is liquidity, meaning can I turn this into cash when I want to use it for an opportunity? And also I want some kind of growth on this that's going to make me feel like it's not just money 
that's on the sidelines completely, or it's out of commission. I really want it to continue working for me while I'm holding it. And so I would be thinking, where am I going to get the best safety, the best liquidity, the best, best growth? And again, certainly if I want all of my money there, then I'd be thinking towards privatized banking. Privatized banking is not the only place or infinite banking, we can call it either. It's not the only place to store cash. You're still going to want money in the bank where you can get to it quickly. You're still going to want other pockets of capital. Sometimes people might even want some silver and gold as well to have more of a long-term long term store of cash. But you want to be in a position where you're thinking about the purpose of your money, how quickly you're going to want to access and use it and what you want to do with it. So I, I love the safety, liquidity, and growth components of thinking about storing cash. So what's Ready the for next one, Bruce? Yes. All right. Here we've got a great question, and this is from The Best Classical Music. Um, again, don't know the person's actual name. I understand velocity banking and think it's a great strategy. I'm still trying to wrap my head around IBC. I have no debt, so the advantages there seem to no longer apply. First, I'm not sure if you mean the advantages of velocity banking seem to not any longer apply because the purpose of velocity banking tends to be paying off loans, or are you talking about IBC? Just to I think what, I, I think he's talking or or he or she, whoever it is, I think they're talking about IBC because what I think they're saying is I can see if you're trying to recapture um, interest payments you're making to another banking uh, in institution. But if I don't have any debt and I'm paying for everything with cash and mm -hmm. I'm never going to have debt, then that's what they're referring to, okay. I believe. Okay. And you probably are right because of the next part of the question. So the idea, this is um, this question goes on to say, the idea of paying 40000 to a policy only to borrow 36000 cash value and buy a 36000 car just means I paid 40000 and received a 40000 policy, a 36000 policy debt, and a $36,000 car. So now I need to pay down the debt for the car, basically paying for the car two times as I have to knock out the debt. Paying $76,000 for a $40,000 policy and a $36,000 car versus paying $36,000 for a $36,000 car. I sure wish I could wrap my head around these things. Smiley face. Sorry, not saying IBC is wrong. I just fail to see the advantage of how to capture money. I think this is a very interesting question. And thank you for yeah. laying out kind of everything that you were thinking of along the way. Bruce, you want to start this yeah, one off? This, this person's either going to uh, have an aha moment or they're going to never get there. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be anywhere in between because saying paying 76,000. So first of all, they see as a premium to a life insurance company as a payment, not a, as a place to store money. Mm -hmm. Now, parts of that is true because there's a contractual ob obligation by, but by the way, you kind of control that contractual obligation to pay that premium and you're storing money into the policy. Now, it's no different than if you uh, pay money to a bank or maybe a better one, as we were talking about before the show, is pay it money and pay off your house mm -hmm. and then take a home equity line of credit. So over time, you've actually paid the home equity line of credit so that you can get equity in your house. So that's like paying into your house. If you think your life insurance policy is like your house, mm -hmm. then you're paying the premium into the contract 
which is an asset, just like your house is an asset. And then you borrow against the HELOC, the home equity line of credit to buy the car, which by the way, is not a bad strategy. Um, and then you pay the HELOC back off. Now, let me, let me go back to the bank strategy that I believe this person uses. And I, I actually have used this example on many occasions with clients that just pay cash for a car. You make a $500 payment or $1,000 payment every month to a special fund, savings account or checking account. That's going to be your car fund. And Nelson talks about this in the book. Every Matter of fact, he used to always say his wife gets a car every seven years, whether she needs it or not, uh, because he would just, he would do it with it, with the policy, but you could do it with a, um, with a bank. You just pay a thousand dollars a month till you get up to 36,000 or three years. You then go take that $36,000 to the bank or excuse me, to the dealership and you buy a $36,000 car. And so this person thinks, well, they're not paying for the car, but they're going to continue to make that thousand dollar payment back into the bank, which is true. They're not paying any interest over here, but until they get it all built up again, they're actually giving up interest mm -hmm. that they could be making at the bank. So every you're either paying interest or you're giving up interest. Now, a lot of people nowadays say, well, they're not paying me any interest at the bank anyway, so I'm really not giving up anything. And that's our point. You could be storing your money in some other vehicle that you could be getting a better interest rate, or you, they can get you some other um, factors that you might like, whether it's the death benefit, whether it's long-term care, or whether it's uninterrupted compound growth. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, going back to the HELOC, you're paying the HELOC back. You're hoping as you're paying the HELOC back that your house continues to go up in value. There's no contractual reason that would go up in value, but traditionally it has gone up in value. Mm -hmm. Or if you pay it back to a policy, there is a contractual uh, way that the policy will go up in value. Um, and historically, there's an, uh, dividends that will also cause it to go up in value. So I think this person is really stuck thinking that they're paying $36,000 for a car. They're paying $40,000 for a premium. And then they're borrowing against, against that $40,000 to buy the $36,000 car and then paying it back again. So they think they're paying it twice because they're using money to pay for the car. And then they're using money to pay back the policy. But that's what they would do in their regular savings account, right? They would just mm -hmm. pay another $1,000 to the savings account. But for some reason, they think that's pain twice. Um, so it's kind of yeah, hard to do this, do this, uh, you know, talking about the, through this uh, on a podcast, but uh, hopefully people can kind of see or visualize that. Yeah. I think sometimes it can feel very complicated, but really what we're asking is two questions, really. What is the benefit of paying cash versus financing is really kind of what this comes down to. And if you think about when do you pay for the car, if you pay cash, you have cash, you trade the cash for a car, then you are going to then restart stacking up that savings account again to get it back to the level that it was before you paid for the car. So Bruce, you're saying you're going to pay again 
anyways by replenishing that savings account if you're being a good financial steward. You're not just going to think, well, I save only one time and I never save again, or I never will have another need for cash. But the challenge with paying cash really is saying, well, I paid cash for the car. That doesn't mean there was no cost. And we talked about this again before the show, but there's the idea that if I pay cash, there's no finance charge. There's no interest. Maybe not a direct interest charge, but you do pay interest by the inability to earn interest. So when your bank account is down to zero, you're not earning anything on it. So instead of paying interest, you're giving up the ability to earn interest when you pay cash. So just something to think about there. If you finance through a life insurance policy, you're first putting the cash into a policy that's a growing asset, then you're borrowing against that and putting the dollars to work by buying the car. And then yes, you will have additional cash, just like in the savings account, you're going to have additional cash come back and replenish the loan that you took out. Or in the cash cash situation, you basically took a loan from yourself. So the situation really is, when are you paying for the car? And if you think about the life insurance policy, the first premium that goes into the policy, that's not paying for the car. That's paying for a life insurance policy. That's a growing, accumulating, building asset. When are you actually paying for the car? It's when you pay off the policy loan, I would say. So you're not paying twice for the car. You're paying first for the the life insurance policy. The second time you repay the loan, that's when you're actually paying for the car. That's what I would say. Um, Another real piece about this is I would say IBC is not, it's not really about paying off debt. I mean, certainly you can use it for that, but it's not the number one most important purpose of infinite banking to pay off debts um, in terms of how to pay off your house as quickly as possible, how to pay off cars as quickly as possible. You certainly can use it for that. And certainly if you take a policy loan, there is going to be that liability that you do want to repay if you want to replenish the ability to use your full cash value again. But it's not, I, I don't like thinking about infinite banking specifically as a debt payoff tool, because if I do, I limit the capacity to truly use that for opportunities that are going to generate cash flow for me. And I'm just thinking about how do I pay off debt as quickly as possible? And that's really not the ideal um, use of IBC. I would also say that there was one thing I really wanted to correct here. The line that says just means I paid a $40,000 to receive a $40,000 policy. If you paid $40,000 into premium, your death benefit is not going to be $40,000. Your cash value is going to be somewhere in that ballpark, but your death benefit of the policy is going to be many times the premium. You're going to be paying, if you pay $40,000, Bruce, I mean, it depends on your age. It depends on um, you know underwriting and all those things. But if you put $40,000 into a policy, I would say chances are you're going to be $300,000 or more in terms of a death benefit, right? I mean- both of the things you just said are true. You don't know, but you could say that 300,000 too. I mean, it's okay. <laughs> we don't know. Yeah. Because <laughs> we don't know how old you are. We don't know your rating. We don't know. And it's, I know people get frustrated, but we don't know. I mean, you know, people, I say even, this, I, I even say this to people all the time. Just give me your professional opinion. Well, my professional opinion is we don't know um, because we don't know if you're 25. We don't know if you're 65. Mm-hmm. We don't know if you're healthy. We don't know if you're not healthy. You know, so uh, that's that's my professional opinion is we don't know, but definitely it's, true. let's just say that let's just say this: what we do know is it's going to be leveraged up considerably from forty thousand dollars. That's what I was getting at. If you put forty thousand dollars into a policy, the death benefit's not going to be forty thousand dollars. Right, 
not going to be that. Uh, so really the advantage, if you really want to step back from that whole discussion, what's the advantage of using infinite banking? You are always going to pay interest, but you're also earning or getting the ability to earn interest. You're not just paying interest, you're also earning interest. And then you're having that uninterrupted compounding effect on your cash. So that's really the advantage of being able to use infinite banking. Yeah. And there, and I mean, we can go down a rabbit hole all day, but the other thing is, is that uh, you can change your payment terms. Um, but once you, once you just take cash out of the bank, uh, or once you just take your HELOC and go pay for something, you can't, obviously you don't have an obligation to pay your savings account back, but you don't have, also don't have that capital anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could say there's, there's other advantages here too. Hey, here's, here's the thing that um, if people can't get there, um, then that's okay. Then just keep doing this, doing what you're doing. Cause if you want to simplify your life, that's what you should be doing. Just simplify. Hey, I just believe that I'm going to build this up and then go pay for this. I think I always fall back on what Nelson used to say. Infinite banking is about who controls the banking function. So if you look at all the banks that are on every corner, and sometimes they're on every corner, um, so not only on any corner, but every corner, there must be a reason that there's banks all over the place. They're very profitable. And so if you can recapture some of that banking function, then that obviously has to be good for your personal economy. Oh, that's good. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one here. And again, I thank you for that question. Here is another question. Okay. So you can take out a loan instead of taking the cash. Hmm. Okay. Just read it. Yeah. Just read it exactly the way it is. And I can help with this. Okay. So you can take out a loan instead of taking the cash value because my cash value is low. And this is from the life of Johnny Mo. That's the the question Um, or the, the person asking the question. Bruce, um, so we don't talk about this. Yeah, we don't talk about this very, very often. And and I think this is what has happened to him, or maybe what he thinks would happen. Um, You can just take your cash value back. Okay, you you can just tell the I don't want to take a loan. I just want to take my cash value back. But when you do that, you contractually have reduced your um, not only your death benefit, but your ability to put that cash back in. So if you just say, hey, insurance company, I have put in, put in and I have $100,000 of cash value. I don't want to take a loan against my 100000 I just want to take my cash value back. And they will do that. Now, but they'll lower, they will lower the death benefit. They will now, they will now not have that uninterrupted compounding and pretend that you still have the entire 100,000 in there, they will lower that. So I don't know if Johnny Moe did that or if he took a loan against his cash value uh, that is shown that the ability to, to have additional cash value because on your statements, if you take a loan, they lower what they show your cash value, what they say cash value available for loans. Mm-hmm. Your cash value is still there if you take in a loan, 
uninterrupted compound growth, but on your statement, it'll say cash value available. Some, some, of, some of the companies even say loan amounts. So I hope he doesn't think that now I, my cash value is re- real low. So now I'm going to just take a loan uh, because he's heard somebody say, well, the death benefit collateralizes the loan. That, that statement is true, but you cannot take a loan greater than the amount of cash value that is available. That's the bottom line. And yes. that makes sense. It would, be, it would be the same way of saying to a person, a bank about my home. Okay, I have a HELOC. Um, I've, I've gone and used all my HELOC. My, my home's gone up in value. Now I just want to take a loan against my home's total value. And I don't know a bank that will do that. because Good. yeah. Yeah, because they, they don't have a safe collateral in that case that they want to mess with. Some people would argue they have a safe collateral because they just could take over the the home, but then they'll have fees to actually sell the home if you don't pay, you know, so on and so forth. So, mm-hmm. well, Bruce, and what you were saying originally is taking cash value back. That would be a withdrawal, correct? That'd be a withdrawal. Yes. So just the withdraw thing your you- cash value right back. Yes. Yeah, so, and we don't talk about that very often. So we've got two ways to access your cash value. And again, you don't access your death benefit unless you pass away and that's not you accessing it. That's your beneficiaries. So you can access the cash value, which is a portion of your death benefit by withdrawal or loan. So withdrawal is what Bruce was saying. You can take the cash value out. He said, you know, that's going to lower your death benefit. You're not going to have the uninterrupted compounding anymore, but you also don't have a loan to repay. The problem is if, if Johnny, if you're in a situation where you have loaned against all of your cash value and now there's no available cash value left, you're not going to be able to withdraw the same cash value you have borrowed against either. So it's a withdrawal or a loan. They're, they're tying up or collateralizing or putting a lien against the portion of the cash value you have the outstanding loan with. If you take a loan, you're going to have interest accrue. You're going to be able to repay that policy loan and continue that uninterrupted compound growth. If you take a withdrawal, you stop those things, but you also are going to pay tax on the growth of the policy, anything beyond what you've paid in capital in premiums. So um, something to think about with this, possibly what you want to do is find a way to repay your policy loan or pay premiums, which will also either one will increase your available cash value to borrow against. And then that again, frees up the capital, kind of like in the HELOC example, if you took out all of the home equity through the HELOC, the way to then be able to use that again would be to repay the HELOC and increase the available credit or the available equity to borrow against in your home. All right. This is kind of related here. This is is. next question. What happens if you take all your cash value out? This is from Bernard on YouTube. Yeah. So once again, I don't know if he truly means taking the cash value out. In other words, just requesting that the cash comes back to you. Uh, If you do that, the contractually, once again, it depends on each company, but a lot of, a lot of the companies will not allow you to take all your cash back value out. There's a limit uh, leaving anywhere between four and 8% because then it goes to what's called extended term. Uh, coverage, which simply means they're going to take whatever cash value is left, they're going to ex- 
give you a smaller term policy over whatever terms of the contract is, whether it's a 10-year term, 15-year term, 20-year term. There's reasons that you might want to do that um, for uh, IRS taxing. You know, you want to keep it going so you don't get taxed on the money if you're above your cost basis. We're not going to go into that uh, particular thing here. And then the other thing is he may actually be asking, because people get this mixed up all the time, is what if you don't have any more loan value because you've actually taken so many loans out that you don't have any cash value? Well, you're earning, you're still earning. I started doing this about 15 years ago. You're actually earning interest every day on your policy, even though you don't get a statement for once a year. So you can actually watch your cash value grow. I think it's kind of fun to do, actually. And because I, I'm constantly using my cash values, some of my, my uh, policies have loans against. And even though they have loans against, you can, the, the cash value still grows. So I tell people, this is, this is proof that uh, a policy loan, eventually, if you capitalize them enough at the very beginning, you'll actually get growth along the way, even though you have a policy loan. So I think he might be saying, I believe he may be saying that, you know, not literally taking the cash value out, but he's taking so many loans that mm-hmm. he has no more cash. Well, if he, if he requests he or she, oh, this is Bernard, so it's probably a he. If, if Bernard requests from his producer in about a month, how much available cash value do I have? I bet you he's going to see some cash value in there. So I guess the question that would maybe be on someone's mind is that, okay, so if I have taken a maximum policy loan and I have not repaid it, what is the situation then? Now, the loan certainly will continue to accrue interest, which will be added to the balance of the loan. And at the same time, the total cash value is going to grow because of the dividends and interest. So what you don't want to be in a situation of is I have a maximum loan and the loan because of the interest is growing faster than the total growth of the policy. And now I'm in a position of getting ready to collapse a policy. Can you explain what that would look like and what would happen in that case if I had a maximum loan and the interest became greater than the full available amount of cash value? I mean, basically the, 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 uh, the, 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 Policy is just going to be forfeited. You you didn't you didn't have you didn't uphold your end of the of the bargain, mm-hmm. and so of the contract, mm-hmm. and so you're not you're not going to be able to go on. Like I said, first, the first thing they do is they go to what's called extended term. Mm-hmm. So they're just going to say, okay, you didn't you didn't pay because if you continue to pay your policy premium, then this will never happen. Right. It would only be if you stop paying premiums and you, and you had a maximum loans. loan and you stop paying the loan and now there's no more cash going into the policy to keep up with the growing uh, policy right. loan, right? And the only bad thing that can ever happen, and this very rarely happens because is, is if you actually have made more money than what you put into it. And then you're above your cost basis. And then if you allow it to expire, whatever money you made on it, you 
actually owe taxes on because you you uh, you violated the contractual agreement with not only the insurance company with the IRS. So you're above your cost basis. Frankly, Rachel, this I've never had a client. I never had. I've never heard of a client where this happens to uh, directly. I've heard. I've heard it throughout the industry that happens because mm-hmm. once you get your policy to a place where it's making more money than what you put into it, mm-hmm. people are so happy they just continue to fund the policy. Right. Because it would be like, put, oh, it's doing really well. Let's, uh, you know, kill it now. You wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. I put 20,000 in and then 21 days, I have $22,000. Why would you stop doing that? It's like your mm-hmm. own personal ATM. Absolutely. Okay. That's a really good uh, discussion around that. So if you have additional questions, please go ahead and ask them. But I think, um, I think we've sufficiently answered that one here. Oh, and, I love the next one. Okay. How do you know that base premium dollars pay higher dividends than PUA dollars? I've seen some of other some other IBC practitioners claim that they pay that either pay the same. Okay, I've seen other I've seen some other IBC practitioners claim that they either pay the same regardless, or that PUA dollars even outperform in terms of dividends. I wish I could get a solid answer on this, and I wonder if it depends on the life insurance company rather than just being a true statement in general. This is Evander on YouTube. Okay, so. It doesn't depend on the life insurance company exactly. It depends on the product. But even if the products are basically the same, first of all, I cannot say this quantitatively. I can only say it qualitatively. If our listeners don't know the difference, quantitatively means I cannot prove it with numbers exactly by... um, by looking at the formula because the, every company is proprietary. Mm-hmm. They will not expose those numbers. You can do it, extrapolate the numbers by saying, okay, here's what I know the person put in. Here's what I know the death benefit is. Here's what the dividend was on the base. And here's what the dividend was on the PUAs. Now, some companies do, in fact, when you extrapolate those numbers, you can see that the percentage of the dividend that was paid on the base was larger percentage than it was on the PUAs. Okay, it's just a fact. So, because you, you might say, well, the base was 50% and the dividend that they paid was X amount of percent. And the, the PUA was this, the dividend they paid was X amount of percent minus a certain amount. It's very easy to see. Others, they definitely say, okay, here's the percentage. It's a small, it's the same percentage on the base as the PUAs, except the thing that they're missing here, and this is what's very difficult, is the percentage was the same, but they pay a more gross dividend because one of the factors every insurance company that I've ever dealt with with their with their uh, investment advisors and, and the actuaries that design, one of the main components is the death benefit, how high the death benefit is. It's not hard to figure out that when you're paying a premium, a base premium, you have a higher death benefit mm-hmm. proportionally on that base premium. So then logically, logic says then that 
that means that the dividend paid, the percentage of that dividend is going to be higher on that base, that base because it's paying for a higher death benefit. On the PUAs, depending on your age and everything, you put a one dollar in, you're going to get anywhere between five dollars of death benefit, and as you get older, you get less and less death benefit. So eventually, you might put a dollar in, and you only get a dollar and ten cents or a dollar and twenty cents in death benefit. So on the PUA that, side, on the PUA side, so that means that the PUA that means the PUA. You put a dollar in, you get $5, or you put a dollar in, you get $1.2. The percentage of the gross that you're getting on that is not going to be the same. Where you put a dollar in for a base premium, you might get $1,000 of death benefits for every dollar you put in, depending on your age again and your health. So both of those things can be true. Uh, you can say, I mean, a person could say, all the all the di- dividend is paid the same, the gross dividend is paid the same on both of them, on and that could be true on a, on certain uh, insurance companies, but the calculation when they calculate that gross dividend, it's going to be against a greater death benefit mm-hmm. on a base, and so thus you're going to get a bigger payout on the base than you would on the PUAs. Okay, so Bruce, I'm going to ask a direct question. That was a that was a lot and a mouthful. So, are you saying? And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I want to clarify. So, is the dividend paid on the death benefit? No, you can't say that. Okay. It's one. It's one component. Gotcha. Okay. Of the calculation, and I but, know that they have that proprietary it, calculation. Right, but it's it. From what I've what I've what I've learned over my career and what I've gained from the investment people and the actuaries, it's a big component of the calculation. Okay. Okay. Very good. Very good to know. Okay. So I think that we also have in our course, I believe we showed uh, an actual policy. And I think Bruce, it was your policy that we specifically showed here was the amount of death or the base premium, here's the amount of PUA premium that went in, and here was the dividend paid on the base, here was the dividend paid on the PUAs. And I remember it was something in the ballpark of if if your policy was designed something like 30% base, 70% PUAs, I think it was in that ballpark, it was something more like 10% of the dividends were paid, or even maybe 2% of the dividends were paid on the PUA premium, and a like 90 to 98% of the dividends were paid on the base premium. If I mean, that was the the concept. I'm not sure if those yeah, exactly are yeah. the numbers. Correct. And we show that in our course that's called Privatized Banking Secrets. If you want to deep dive, we do show a lot more than just telling in that course. And you can get that at privatizedbankingsecrets.com. Just a quick plug in case you are really wanting to deep dive on some of these concepts and really see more for yourself before you're ready for a personal conversation. Yeah, so, this, is, this, this is a classic and I know where this is coming from. This is a classic where people are researching and they're seeing a 10% mm-hmm. base, 90% PUA design, which is supposed to be the only design that everybody should have. And when the person, the people who sell it say that. Right. The, that particular company that sells it, they say that they figured out, even though this person has only been in the industry for a little bit. Only, even though this person has is not a Nelson Nash certified infinite banking 
practitioner. They figured it out in a very short period of time, and they've got the secret that nobody else has, that 1090 is for everybody. Now, they're going to argue if, if, we, if they were sitting here on podcast, and I wish they would come on the podcast. They're going to say, they're going to say and by the way, other um, infinite banking practitioners have offered for these, this company to come on the podcast, and they, they won't do it. Uh, if, if you're having somebody that says, I know what's best for everybody that ever is going to get into this concept, I would say, how do they know that? Mm-hmm. Now, we have guidelines. By that Nelson has put up. And Nelson says these guidelines are a good place to start. But we're because I have people, I have a person we talked to the other day says, I don't want to pay for term insurance costs. I don't want to, I, he, that person thinks that term insurance costs is a lost cost. So they want it built. And the only way you can do that is build it more base. So we have to build it 80% base. Now I could, I could argue with the person and say, yeah, but, you know, the term cost, we can actually convert later on. There's some value to that. And then you're going to get two. But, you know, it's not all about my opinion. It's about what the client wants. Mm -hmm. And other people would say, other people would say, if you believe what I just said, that the base premium is going to have bigger death benefit, thus a higher percentage of the base is going to go is going to affect your dividend and you believe interest rates are going to go up in the future, then you might say, Bruce, I don't want to build this at 30%. Give me as much base as possible Mm -hmm. because I do believe interest rates are going to go up. And the final thing, which I brought up before is we cannot even figure out how these are being built. Regional vice presidents of these particular companies have tried to build these. And if you notice, there's only spreadsheets, not illustrations that are being showed. And if a company won't go to, if, if 1090 is good, why isn't it 199 even better? And they Why can't you not them, do all PUA then? Or all PUAs, yeah. And so the closer you get to where the company will not allow you to do it, there's a reason. They don't want to take on that risk. So you got to ask yourself, do you want to be up to the riskiest portion? Or do you want to be where you have the best of all the world's uh, advantages of these particular contracts? And it meets what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So um, once again, I, I can't, this is one of the frustrating things about uh, proprietary things, but it's not just with life insurance companies. It's with everything you do. I've used this example. You know, you go buy concrete for your driveway. You don't sit there and say to the person, well, what are all your expenses at your concrete plant? I want to know what those are. So how are you calculating what you're charging me? So this is just not, if you open your mind this is just not a life insurance thing where they're not giving you the calculations. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's water, whether you don't ask for a cell phone from Apple, tell me all your, the way you're calculating how you're charging me on this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's really interesting because if you even think about a mercantile or a store, they're, they have all of their overhead costs that they have to pay for. They have all of their employee costs that they have to pay for. They have 
um, power and electricity, they have marketing costs, and all of that is built into the price that you pay for whatever it is that you buy, the milk, the beer, the, the diapers, whatever it is that you're purchasing has a lot of margin built in because the company needs to ultimately be profitable after covering all those expenses. And yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, you never walk up to the the cashier at you know Nordstrom or uh, Kohl's or Target and say, show me your electricity bill. I need to make sure that you're justifying this price right. that I'm paying for this shirt. Right, right, right. All right, let's get to the next one because I like the next one too. All right, so- this person says, do your research on whole life insurance because a lot say they are scams. You don't get the cash value when you die. You only get the insurance value. This is from Lambo on YouTube. Now, first, I like your name. Um, <laughs> let's. Can I, I want to start on this one real quick, Bruce. Um, I think there's a huge misunderstanding that death benefit and cash value are two different things. And I know that uh, this is probably where you would first go with this conversation as well. But when you purchase life insurance, you're buying a death benefit. The cash value is the part of the death benefit that is accessible to you. It's not two separate buckets of money. If you have $100,000 in cash value and a million dollars in death benefit, you don't have $1.1 million total. You have $1 million death benefit total, $100,000 of which you can access and use. So that is something that is this isn't a whole life insurance policy. If you're talking about another type of insurance, then the components are mutually exclusive. But when you're talking about whole life, the the cash value is a portion of your death benefit. What I like to think about this as well, if you sell, if you sell your house, you're not going to get the equity in your house plus the value of the property. You're going to get the total value of the property, which includes your home equity. So that is, I think, a, a big misunderstanding. Bruce, I hope I didn't take away everything you were going to share on that, but I'd love to no, hear I mean, all of your thoughts. No, first of all, this is <laughs> cash value is the net present value of a future death benefit. Now, that's an economic um, concept. So basically, your cash value is going to endow at age 121. So the actuaries have figured out along the way here is your cash value. It's the present value of a future death benefit value. Okay, so so when you apply like a time value of money calculation, what this would be worth what they're in hundred years or in right. eighty five years, and that's why there's two different ones. There's the guaranteed side. Okay, so they're guaranteeing that. So the cash value on the guaranteed side is always less than cash value on the dividend non-guaranteed side. And guess what else is also less? The death benefit on the guaranteed side is all, always less than the, the death benefit on the non-guaranteed side. What you were saying, Rachel, is just drives me crazy because one of the basic concepts that people do not understand is when you have $200,000 of cash value and a million dollars of death benefit, you're not paying for that entire million dollars, you're only paying for the difference between the cash value and the million dollars. In this case, would be $800,000. So you, the actuaries are calculating that all in. So why would they give you, if they're not charging you for the full million, why would they give you the full million and the 200000 
They wouldn't because they're not charging you for it in the calculations. And this is this is a typical Dave Ramsey argument all the time. Yep, it is. Dave says this all the time, and it just proves to me that Dave really doesn't understand how whole life works, because if he did, he wouldn't make that statement. He obviously doesn't know that as the cash value builds up, that's the net present value at any time along the way of a future death benefit. So they do not charge you between the difference between those two. So if they're not charging you for it, then why would they give you the cash value and the death benefit? Because you didn't pay for the entire death benefit. That is interesting. And actually, I'm sure you've explained that before, even on the show, but that is, uh, that's helping, that's aiding my understanding of what your premium is going into. And what's really interesting is that you may or may not know this if you're listening, but as Bruce mentioned, the cash value endows at age 121. That actually means that at age 121, your cash value will equal your death benefit. So along the way, say this is your death benefit. Um, it's for those of you just listening, this is a, a line that I'm showing. Um, so this is a million dollars and you start out in say the first, I don't know, second year cash value is $60,000 over time. The cash value is going to increase and it's going to continue to increase until at age 121, it meets and reaches the death benefit amount. If you're designing the policy and paying it the way that we talk about specially designing, your death benefit will also continue to increase. And so it's going to rise above that one or rise above that 1 million. But at the point of endowment, the age 121, your cash value will meet the exact dollar amount of your death benefit. And what's interesting is that insurance companies know about life expectancy. They're extremely um, effective in calculating exactly what the death benefits are or the um, mortality timeframes with their actuarial science. But really what they're looking at is if you did reach that age 121, which most likely the people living today will not, but if we did, you will get a full payout of your full death benefit to you while you're still living. And so it is interesting as Bruce, you're saying, if it's the uh, present net present value of a future death benefit, the closer you are to that age 121, the less time value of the less years you have to apply time value of money, which is why there's less of a difference between your cash value and your death benefit, the further you go into a policy. So mm-hmm. really interesting thoughts there. And let's just, let's finish up on this, this last one. Uh, let's skip 19 and go to 20. Okay. And then finish up on that one. All right. So I numbered mine differently. And okay, so here it is. Can I pay oh, yes. towards a premium on a monthly basis? This is from silent night on YouTube. Yes. Okay. There's three, there's four ways mm-hmm. that you can generally pay for a policy monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, and annually. Mm-hmm. Now, because the monthly is a more uh, an administrative uh, drag on the company and they're trying to save money. Oh, and by the way, that's good. It's a mutual company. They're trying to save money. So, and if they save money, you get a bigger dividend. Mm-hmm. They normally require a monthly premium be an automatic bank draft out of your out of your your checking account or savings account, or I should say out of a checking account or savings account. I have clients that actually have their kids pay their policy 
or they pay their kids policy out of theirs. So you can pay out any checking account you want. The, the second thing I think is very valuable and people have no idea how flexible this is, is you can change mode of premium whenever you like. So if you start with a monthly and you're make, let's say you're making a thousand dollar payment every month and all of a sudden you get a bonus at work and you're like, Hey, I want to go ahead and pay the rest of my premium that I'm contractually obligated for this year. You can just make a, a lump sum payment and be done with it. And then you say, well, I'm going to get this bonus every year. You just ask your producer, Hey, I, I want to change the mode of premium to annually. And then you, the next annual anniversary date comes along and you sit down with your review. I hope you're doing reviews every year with your producer. And you say, hey, I found out that our bonus was less this year. So I don't have as much money. Your producers say, well, how much do you have? And you say, well, I only have about 75% what I thought I was going to. Well, what we could do is we could set up semi-annual. Let's pay the semi-annual. Let's, let's park the rest of that. Um, if you feel uncomfortable, let's park the rest of that someplace. And let's go back to start making that $1,000 annual. Now you can do it in what's called a premium deposit fund. And then you can do that for the next six months. And then just sweep the money to pay for your next semi-annual amount. But let's say something happens. Uh, you lose your job or your spouse loses your job or your spouse has a baby and you want her, her to st- or him to stay home or the other one and you're, you cut it in half. You could say, oh, I decided I just want to go back to a monthly premium. You can change it again. You, the, you control the flexibility and a lot of people have no idea how this works. Um, uh, Rachel, I'm just going to bring up one real, it's, it's off topic a little bit. That's okay. Go it, ahead. But it shows you. So we had a we had a person who was who had an IUL policy, and I'm not going to discuss whether IUL is good or bad because nothing is good or bad. It's a strategy that you're using. But this person decided that they no longer wanted to use the IUL. They wanted to do a 1035 exchange into a whole life policy. But their premium payment, their annual premium payment, was coming up in about a month and they were freaking out. They were like, we don't, we don't want to put the premium in there and then not have the first year's premium for the whole life. But I know I can't get an answer from the insurance company for sure. What should I do? Now uh, it's going to sound like I'm bragging on myself here and I apologize, in, in, but it's just go ahead and brag, Bruce. From this all is the okay. years from all the years of doing this, he, he talked to three producers. The other two guys, and they were guys, said to him, well, we got to hurry up and get this done. So, you know, take an application today and let's get this going and we'll get it, we'll get it done in, in one, one a month. And he felt pressured to do that. And when I met with them, I said, well, here's what you can do. All you need to do is change it to a monthly premium. If we don't get it done, you make one month premium payment. You're still gonna you're still gonna actually build the cash value up by about seventy five percent. So you're really only paying that cost of about twenty five percent of that one month 
to keep that full policy going. Mm-hmm. And now you're not under any pressure to do this and get it done. That's awesome. Because yeah, the, the cost then is way less and you're not paying the full year. You're just paying the one month and extending your peace of mind. You know, really, we were paying to extend this peace of mind. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not, and I'm bringing that up to show you the flexibility. The other one should have thought about that. Now, hopefully, it's kind of, I always say to people, are you incompetent or are you, are you lack character and you're using sales? I hope they were just incompetent, mm-hmm. you know, that they were like, oh, I never even thought about, they knew it, but they just didn't think about you could change the mode of premium. Yeah. But it's very valuable. And that's, once again, for our listeners, you're in control of how the contract works within the contract language. Mm-hmm. So you can, they can't tell you, oh, well, you got to go back to annual premiums or you have to go to a monthly premium or so on and so forth, but it's in the contract language. And Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but with our premium as well, there's times that we say, well, you know, we have this premium coming due. I mean, you could pay your premium early, right? You could, you could say, I have an annual scheduled premium payment and I don't want to change the mode of premium, but you know, it's not due till December. I have a good chunk of it now. I want to go ahead and pay in July and then I want to pay some more in September. And then I have another chunk I want to put in a week later and maybe you're paying premium or maybe you're repaying a policy loan. So there's two different ways you can get cash into this policy and you can do that at any time, even if you have an annual scheduled premium payment, correct? Yeah, you're, te- you're, you're technically, once you've paid the full premium payment up in any given year, you can't put more premium in, even if you have it early, because you'll make the policy. But what you can do, if you say, I want to get this out of my hands, you can, every insurance company has what they call, a, well, they, they don't all call it this, but they have like a premium deposit fund, mm-hmm. which is a separate contract at the life insurance company. Think of it as a savings account at the life insurance company with your name on it. Mm-hmm. where you store the premium there until you can actually pay it. And we just, all you have to do is call the company and say, sweep it to, to make the payment. And they just take it from one pocket and put it in the other pocket. Now, Bruce, this, oh. this is a savings account. Mm-hmm. So it's generating 1% interest, which I never thought I'd get excited about 1% interest. I was just going to say not to have a bunny trail, but how does it compare to a bank savings account? And so you're answering exactly the question. But it's also a tax, it's taxable. That portion is taxable because it's technically not in the contract. Good to know. Well, I think this is a ton of really relevant, super deep and applicable information. Again, we really appreciate the questions. Look, we only got through, I think, um, seven of them today. We still have a whole list of questions we're going to be answering next time we do a show like this. Not all of our shows are going to be listener questions, but um, you'll see that answers to your money questions with a number after it. And we'll just continue on this series whenever we have a, a generous amount of questions that we can answer all at once. And hopefully you'll find yourself in some of those questions and get some clarity that maybe there was just nuggets of information about premium payments and mode of premium payments or the ability to switch that really might help you with your own um, life insurance story and also just your bigger financial Um, awareness of all of what you're doing financially to optimize and maximize and make as efficient as possible everything you're doing in your financial life. So um, Bruce, thank you for this show today. I know that we went a little bit long, but thank you for staying with us if you're listening to the show. And in closing, 
if you are looking to amplify everything that you're doing financially, we invite you into a conversation with our advisor team. And we would love to be able to talk with you about your financial goals and really help you accelerate, move faster towards those, get your dollars doing more things at once, building a legacy, storing cash in a better place, being more financially stable and secure, and having the best performance in the widest range of circumstances that are outside of your control. So you have the most control. We'd love to do that for you. And lastly, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.